Trudy Morgan Cole, and this is my podcast, Shelf Esteem, where I talk to people I find interesting about books that they find interesting. And I have such interesting guests uh, this month. We have a couple, Ainsley and Andrew Hawthorne. You may well have heard of them. Ainsley is an author and cultural historian. And she is the editor of the recent book, Land of Many Shores, which is a great collection about cultural diversity uh, in Newfoundland from a very diverse group of authors. And Andrew's voice, you probably heard before, he is a journalist with CBC Radio. We had a wonderful conversation about books and so many other things. And as always, I kicked it off with the question I always like to start with. Andrew, what have you read lately that's left a real impact on you? Well, I really just finished a book called Memories of the Bounty. It's actually from Nova Scotia. Uh, it was written by Janet Coulter Sanford, and uh, I've always uh, I, I have a great history, h- interest in naval history uh-huh. and, and in, in maritime history, and in the Bounty particular, uh, I did a constrained comic called On the Bounty really? for about five years online, and uh, and and for a long time I I was thinking that I would go sailing on the tall ship Bounty, but unfortunately uh-huh. did sink. But this book <laughs> is a memoir of one of the members of the first crew of that ship, Tall oh, Ship wow. Bounty. Uh, which was made in Lunenburg and uh-huh. then sailed down to Tahiti to film with Marlon Brando and everything. Uh-huh. And it was it was totally great. It was a really good book, but it was interesting. At the beginning, I found it frustrating because she had really, the author had really inserted herself into this. Like, a lot of the first couple of chapters were her talking about meeting and interviewing this guy who mm-hmm. had been on the ship rather than the actual story of him on the ship. Right. Which at first I found frustrating, but throughout the book you realize, like, really what she's doing is telling a story of this person's development as a person and particularly his uh, dealing with Alzheimer's towards uh-huh. the end of his life. Okay. And so, like, there was a really nice roundness to the way that she told the story because of that. I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. That's so interesting. I haven't even heard of that. but I It's guess... a small press book, but it's great. Oh, that's great. I think it's Nimbus, right? Nimbus. Because I saw it in their catalog. Oh, and he yeah. has such a long-standing love for naval history and an interest in the bounty in particular. Uh-huh. I circled it and put it in my Christmas gift pile. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so that's how it came around. Yeah. I, ha- I have to say, one of my recent um, books that I'm plugging is kind of naval history related too, but but fiction. It's um, Derek Yetman's The Yankee Privateer. That was just right. launched, right? They yes, launched just at the launched Crow's last Nest. week. Yeah, yes. I read it before it before before release because I, I blurbed it, mm. and after I read it, I, I emailed Derek Yetman. And I said, like, please teach me everything you know about naval history because ah. where a lot of my historical fiction is set at sea and I know nothing about it. I'm like, this guy really knows his stuff. So that's a that's a that's a real recommendation from me if you're interested. It's in it's on my must read list. Yeah, yeah, I think you'd really like it, and it's it's a piece of Newfoundland history too that I knew nothing about was like our involvement in the American Revolutionary mm-hmm. War so it's really interesting um, what about you Ainsley what's something you've read lately that's left an impact so one of my favorite books that I've read lately is The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons by Sam Keane oh what a great title isn't that great <laughs> I so I mostly read nonfiction, uh-huh. and I'm especially interested in kind of general interest history general mm-hmm. interest psychology that that tell the story of something from our culture or our shared experience Mm -hmm. um, for an audience that might not be familiar with the academic details of it. Uh That book is about uh, the history of neuroscience, but through a storytelling approach. So Mm -hmm. each chapter is based around one person's experience or a historical incident.
accident. Mm -hmm. And that is used to explain a discovery in neuroscience or a way in which the field was advanced. Uh That is probably my favorite style of nonfiction writing Uh because you get that in through narrative. Right. That kind of grabs you and keeps you interested, keeps the story moving um, as a way to teach you some things about science or Mm -hmm. about, you know, historical principles. So I really enjoyed it. It's also uh, idiosyncratic in in unusual ways, like uh, each chapter begins with a rebus that is a a reference to what the chapter is about. And I can only imagine that the author just thought, I want to do this. I want to do this. I'm going to pitch the publisher and see if they'll like go for this thing. And it has really nothing to do with the rest of the book. But they just probably really (laughs) like Rebus's. Yeah, but it's just so fun. So it's very, very well written, easy to read. I learned a lot from it. Oh, that is good. That is, that's become a real interest of mine too, is sort of popular nonfiction books Mm. about specialist subjects, but pitched to, you know, the lay person like me. Uh, And that one, that one sounds like it would need to go on my list. I've, I've recently discovered that, um, those well the rebus thing wouldn't but those types of bur- books work really well for me as audio books yes. to be listening to a book but like the the latest one i did was um uh isabel wilkerson the warmth of other suns about mm. the great migration of african americans from the south to the to the northeastern united states mm-hmm. and again it's that narrative thing of she hooks into the stories of three people that she follows throughout and then does the sort of broader historical scope of, of the story of the great migration. It's just such a great way to learn stuff. I, that's the type of nonfiction I aspire to write is where you're using storytelling to explain interesting ideas and not only the content, but also why they're relevant, why they're exciting. Right. But I, I think storytelling is so fundamental to who we are as human beings. That's how we get our into so many subjects. Absolutely. How does it apply to someone's life? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love to read it. Yeah. And I'm trying to write it. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, how about books for for either of you? Have you thought about books that have been really influential to you in your life? Like a book that's been like, you know, the book that really shaped you or, or the books that really shaped you. Ainsley, you're nodding your head. <laughs> yeah, there. it was hard for me to pin down one because there are a couple that leap to mind. The you, first you can definitely one. talk about oh, good, one. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Okay. The first one is The Whole Woman by Jermaine Greer. Oh, okay. So that came out in 1999 mm-hmm. uh, and it was sort of a follow-up. At a, Jermaine Greer is a famous um, sort of radical feminist. Yeah. Uh, and it was at a later stage in her writing where she was looking back at feminism to that point mm-hmm. and saying that we're settling for equality on paper, hmm. right? We're settling for um, women getting into historically men's professions right. and making the same amount of money mm-hmm. as them in those professions instead of saying, well, what does it really mean for women to be liberated? She's mm. a liberation feminist. Uh-huh. The idea that... Things that are traditionally associated with women should be valued the way things that are traditionally associated with men are. So, you know, in our, it's still today in 2022, um, early childcare workers are paid less than plumbers, even exactly, though they both yeah. take similar levels of education, mm-hmm. right? They're similar hours, similar levels of expertise, but one is a traditionally masculine profession, one's a traditionally feminine um, profession. So she raises all of those types of issues mm-hmm. in that book. Uh, and I read it, my father had read it, and he recommended it to me strongly and lent it to me when I was around 20 years old. 
I was kind of a burgeoning feminist. Uh I was the type of teenager who thought, I'm not a feminist. I just want equality. I don't want to be better than men. And feminists are man-haters. So it wasn't until I, you know, was 18, 19 and in university when I really um, became aware of how fundamentally gender influences the way we're treated. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, it was probably a, a, a course in psychology, psychology 101 sort of, that I did in my first year, where they showed us an experiment where a baby is given to one person and introduced as a little boy, mm-hmm. and they treat the baby one way. They encourage it to do active things, to play with engineering toys like blocks, right? To, mm-hmm. to sit on a little, um, you know, jumping pony or right, something. Yeah. Same baby given to a different person introduced as a girl. Mm -hmm. And then it's encouraged to speak with a doll. Yeah. Right? Sit still and we'll do social activities. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until that point in time that I realized, wow, socialization, gender socialization plays such a major role in our lives. Kind of opened my eyes. Subsequently reading The Whole Woman. I, I felt like my world had been kind of blown apart. And I'm sure if I were, I haven't reread it in years, so I'm sure if I were to go back to it today in the 23 years that have elapsed since it was published, uh, feminism has continued to change a lot and we're more aware of intersectionality. And um, the, the, when, when we say woman, there isn't just one you know, female experience, many, many different experiences. And, you know, the experience of experiences of trans women are different from cis women. And there are other minority genders with, Mm -hmm. with, um, experiences, but it, it blew my mind at the time and really influenced my thinking to this Mm -hmm. day. That's great. Yeah. 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 Now you said you had trouble narrowing it down. Were there others that were strong? Competitors? You got to throw all the books out. Yeah, there. yeah. yeah. Well, it's okay. This is the this. other uh, very influential author for me is Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, okay. I I love Malcolm Gladwell books. I do. They're not perfect books. Uh-huh. The first one I read was probably Blink. Right. Um, and what my father likes to say about Blink, and it's true, is that Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole book about intuition without ever using the word intuition. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> As though he invented the concept, which is true. Yeah. Um, but I, what I like about Malcolm Gladwell's style uh, in that book and in his other works like Outliers, which I thought was probably the strongest mm-hmm. of his books that I've read, is that he, he kind of takes an idea that challenges some received notion we have about how the world operates mm-hmm. so in outliers he's he's challenging the idea that merit or skill has a lot to do with where you wind up in life and he's saying it, it has a lot to do being extremely successful being an outlier has to do with circumstances beyond your control right like in our culture uh, school years are based on when you're born in the calendar year and you're assigned Absolutely, to a grade yeah. level starting in January, mm-hmm. which means the kids that are born in January yeah. are a year almost older than the kids the born December in December. Yes, I was the mother of a January baby and I was right. keenly aware of this in, in injustice. Yeah, they're bigger in yeah. sports. They're smarter because mm-hmm. they've had almost 12 months of intellectual development. And so yeah. he sort of looks at studies in that book that show that, you know, children... Um, excel mm-hmm. in school based on, or don't excel, based on when they're born, yeah. which obviously is an injustice. Not and within shapes, their control. Yeah. Not within their control shapes their opportunities uh-huh. for the rest of their lives. So that's just one example. He talks yeah. about many different things. But I, I like his his kind of big idea, challenging an assumption we have, and mm-hmm. contemplating it. I think the weakness of his books is they tend to be a little 
like glib is not the right word, but they can be a little bit maybe um, superficial in some ways. Mm -hmm. But that idea of like nonfiction that challenges our assumptions, I really, really enjoy. Yeah. So I enjoy reading his books and, and that's uh, a sort of approach to nonfiction I really like. That's great. Mm. What about you, Andrew? What are books that have been really influential for you? <clears throat> uh, I'm going to throw it two as well. Okay, uh, no, uh, neither of us can narrow it down. No. That's okay. There's so no expectation books. on this. So many books. I love no expectations. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, so I, I was a comic book writer before I was a journalist, uh -huh. and so I'm throwing out a graphic novel, which Great. is From Hell uh, by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. Alan Moore is primarily known probably for Watchmen. Yeah, that's or, where I know the name from. Exactly. For sure. Or for V for Vendetta. Everybody's mm -hmm. still wearing yeah. uh, V masks out there. <laughs> Um, but From Hell is a book he did in the 90s with Eddie Campbell, who's a Scottish graphic novelist who was primarily known for nonfiction autobiography. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it's about Jack the Ripper. It's a story okay. of, it's a historical fiction, and it's, it's really incredible. And I, mm. I read it, it, it's a big book, it's still available, it was made into a horrible movie, uh, oh. with Johnny Depp that, that has nothing to do with the... <laughs> nothing to do with the book? book. <laughs> uh, but it's just, like, they did as much research as they could on, on Jack the Ripper and just did this this arc and this story. But it's also about how ideas about a historical event uh, change the event and change the people who, who think about history and, mm -hmm. and how they do so. Yeah, you, you know, Alan Moore is a very metafictional writer. Like, often the things that he's writing are reflective on the act of writing itself or, or on kind of a larger picture of what mm -hmm. they're doing. And, uh, and From Hell is no different because it's about kind of the historicity of researching a murder and, and what kind of damage even um, the, the impact of the murder has even generations later. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm smacking uh, my wife here. I'm used to it. <laughs> That's on tape now. Thanks. Um, but yeah, so during the last uh, murder, uh, the character who's Jack the Ripper in From Hell ends up kind of having a vision of the London a hundred years after 1888. And he's, he's, he's disgusted by like the decadence that he sees cause mm -hmm. he's from this very stoic Victorian era. And, and a lot of it is about the Victorian era and mm -hmm. how kind of, the, the violence of the culture, you know, the, the repressed aspect in terms of sex, all of the victims being women, all of the victims being women who, in, in at least in this interpretation, were all forced into sex work mm -hmm. um, and living in the worst neighborhood in the city. You know, reflecting on how that kind of violence contributes to how we think about murder and how we think mm -hmm. about the act of murder. So it's it's a really interesting book that, that I, I completely recommend from hell. Um, that is so interesting. The other book is Peter and Wendy, uh, oh. which is Peter Pan. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I recently actually just got a an original first edition of Peter and Wendy that Ooh. I'm extremely happy about. It's I got so it for beautiful for mm. relatively nothing compared to to what those go really? for. Really? Yeah. Where'd you? How did you? I just got in on the right eBay auction. Oh wow! <laughs> and and the spine is is faded, uh -huh. so it's not pristine, but it's no. pretty darn good. Wow. The rest of it is pretty perfect, good. and yeah. I've always wanted one. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always been a fan of Peter Pan. Uh, it is a deeply problematic text uh -huh. uh, to get it out there. It's it's very again Edwardian racist, uh -huh. um, but it's it's a wonderful story, and also it really it's always helped me deal with grief. Because there's a, I actually copied out the passage for you. So oh, there's a passage great. at the end of one of the the chapters, uh, where Peter has been stabbed by Hook. Uh, he was rescuing Tiger Lily, mm -hmm. one of the problematic characters, who's the, yeah. the queen of the Indians, basically. Uh, and 
and, and also Wendy, and he's decided to stay behind, even though he's bleeding to death. Mm-hmm. And Peter Pan is a deeply dark story. It's yeah. it's not really a kid's story. It's very cynical about kids in a lot of way, mm-hmm. ways. And one of those is, is Peter is, is really a jerk throughout yeah. the entire time. Um, but he's decided at this point that he's dead, so he's going to allow the Neverbird to rescue Wendy and, and all these other characters, and he's going to stay behind. And, and it's just a moment where he's dealing with his own mortality. Mm-hmm. And so the book says, Peter was not quite like other boys, but he was afraid at last. A tremor ran through him like a shudder passing over the sea. But on the sea, one shudder follows another, till there are hundreds of them, and Peter felt just the one. Next moment, he was standing erect on the rock again, with a smile on his face and a drum beating within him. It was saying, to die will be an awfully big adventure. Ooh. It's awesome. That is gorgeous. Yes. So, I do recommend it with the caveat that it is a deeply It's so racist. It's so racist. Because we've reread it since we um, acquired this. I really wanted to read it from a first first edition. edition. Yeah. But it it is absolutely racist. But some of the interesting features of the text, like like Andrew says, it's so critical of children. Mm. And there's a line I can't remember in it. But but Peter is is sort of like this rarefied version of childhood that is completely narcissistic and (laughs) Uh self-interested and has has no real um, empathy for other people at all. There's some line in the book about how things will be this way for as long as children are heartless and cruel. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's not I you it's, it's not it's, sentimental about childhood. It no, it's no. the type of story you know people read to children and children would take one thing away from it, which is the narrative, and uh-huh. an adult reading it would take away something completely yes, different, which yeah. is this like yeah. critique. It's yeah. interesting, like yeah. the, the Disney version. You don't want to say Disneyfied, but the Disney version of Peter yeah. Pan is the plot. Right, you know, yes. Where it's this great yes. grand adventure and they're off doing this stuff. But then you read the book, and presumably the play must have been a little like that as well. It was mm-hmm. a play originally. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a play um, before it was a novel. Before yes. it was a yeah. novel. And so when J.M. Barry turned it into the novel Peter and Wendy, mm-hmm. um, the narrator is criticizing the characters throughout the <laughs> oh, really? novel. Yes. And, and I don't know why he made that decision. It's really interesting. It yeah. makes for really great reading, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll detour a bit because I really got into it through the movie Hook. Uh-huh. Which is not a beloved movie by many people. <laughs> it is by totally me. it's a totally valid way to get into the story. It's a good yes. movie. Yeah. And that movie really looks at some of these more problematic issues mm-hmm. in Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. In, in term, Not problematic, but in terms of how snarky it is towards mm-hmm. children in a way. And it explores That's not that. a problem. No. So, <laughs> it was totally no. great, actually, and very ahead of its time. So I, I was kind of prepared for it before mm-hmm. I read Peter Pan as a child. Right. Um, and I still recommend Hook. I don't care what people say. It's a very good movie. But the, the little things that are in the book that don't make it into adaptations, yeah. like the Disney version, are things like the reason there are no adult Lost Boys. Because Peter is the only character who is a child forever. Yeah, it, it, the first line in the book is, all little boys except one grow up. Right. The Broad Lost children. Boys The lost boys are boys who have fallen out of their prams and down sewer grates and sort of oh. disappeared from the real world, but they grow up. Right. And Peter disposes of them. Yeah, so when either, they get too old, either wow. he kills them, yes, or they turn into pirates. It's ah. not clear, and right? he kills but, them to prevent them from turning into pirates. But so. there's a real dark edge. There's yeah, a dark yeah. edge to the yeah. story. There's, there's yeah. so much. I mean, along with the horrific racism, there, yes. is, there is so much darkness really in all of those. Like you know, Victorian and Edwardian oh, yeah. children's classics. Yeah. I was somebody was pointing out. Um, 
the other day when they somebody somebody on Twitter pointed out when they unveiled the statue of L.M. Montgomery mm. and someone mentioned oh yes the the author who wrote the book where a Jewish peddler cons Anne into buying the hair that turns her the dye that turns her hair green I was like oh my gosh I'd forgotten this was there was the whole riff on the Jewish peddler in that Ew. you know and when you you'd go back to some of these you're like I did not even you know notice any oh. of that at the well, time well some of the books some of my favorite books as a child were the uh, Little House on the Prairie yes books i had a collection someone when i was a baby must have given me a box set of all the books Uh so it was always on the bookshelf when i was growing up and when i was finally old enough to read them and went through them i loved them i loved the idea of this little girl adventuring with her family it was fabulous Mm -hmm. and uh, when you're you know when you're a child you, you you don't realize like the racism, they've been yeah. really criticized for the way that indigenous people represent. And, yeah. you know, okay, now, of course, because she and her family were colonizing yes. indigenous territories, like, of course. Yeah. Right? But yeah. it, it kind of, you know, went, yeah, it takes takes until this point in our history for us to kind of become aware of the ideas that white people had yeah. about other races and how they work their way into cultural works yeah. and, and it's, as, as white readers we kind of go back and look at that stuff and be like oh i oh, never noticed any jeepers. of that but of course an indigenous reader would coming see to it right away right we, we had the yeah. leisure to not notice exactly. that's exactly yes. right the, the yeah. privilege yeah yeah and yeah. it's interesting because there's two schools of thought of course there's there's the idea that we should just dump all of these books for those problems mm. or or not and you, you know i i kind of tend to approach Art at this point that if it was made before 10 years ago I'm going to have some real problems <laughs> oh, with it. It. Yeah. Yeah. you know all my favorite movies from the 80s for example are rampant with yes. vicious homophobia even the most benign ones are rampant yeah. and racism and, and immense racism and sexism sexism like, yeah. So everything yeah. it's it's all a problem so you know do, do we dump it all and, and just create new stuff or do we I Do think we, we approach to, it with caution. Yeah. Yeah, I think we, we approach it with caution. Lens too, and, and, you know, I think people should be uh, thoughtful about what they expose children to. Yes. So, sure. you know, I have tentatively recommended Peter Pan to people, mm-hmm. saying, you know, it has it's really racist, it has these problems, but here are the things that I think are good about that yeah. you, an adult, yeah. might be interested in reading. Would I read it to a child? No. Yeah. Right? Because you don't want to kind of shape a young person's... Yeah. I, ideas, right? Like, uh, regardless of whether it's you yeah, know, we had yeah. Uh, 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 sorry to interrupt, but one of the, one of the podcasts that I hosted was about the movie The Monster Squad. It's uh-huh. an eighties movie that I love, and there is some homophobia in it. So we had an episode discussing that mm-hmm. because the writer and directors like what he said about that since is well, that's the way kids talked in the eighties, right? Mm, like this was yeah. we were trying to go for authentic dialogue, and that's the way kids talked. They mm-hmm. would call each other these things as yeah. slurs. And he's not wrong. We did talk that way in the 80s. But we talked that way in the 80s because we were watching movies like this. Yes, yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it was kind of a right? feedback. Snake with eating a, its yeah. tail. Right, yeah. so, so what is the responsibility of the artist yeah. to, like, best represent this stuff, warts and all, or understand that that representation is what is causing yeah. this to mm-hmm. a certain extent you know it's, i think it's it's okay too for anybody you know whether it's parents or teachers or anybody who engages with with kids with books to be critical about it and you know, i mean with yes. this, like i know a lot of people with really little kids will just change words in stories when they're ah. reading to them or change the gender of a character or something but with older kids you know it's it's okay to say hey i love this story but 
these people are portrayed in a really hurtful way and here's you know here's what so I, th I think you can have those conversations mm -hmm. and even with i remember this is not a beloved literary classic but my daughter when she was 12 or 13 coming to me and she was big on confessing things that she had done wrong oh. which were always such oh. tiny tiny yeah. things and in this case she said you're going to be really mad at me when, when you find out about this but um my daughter, who sometimes co-hosts the podcast with me, so everyone who listens has heard her as an adult. But at the time, she was, uh, you might be really mad, but um, I borrowed my friend's copy of Twilight, and I'm reading it. <laughs> and she knew I did not like the Twilight books. And uh, I was like, I'm never going to tell you not to read a book. Yes. But I'm going to say, when you look at the relationship between Edward and Bella, think there's anything creepy about that and just kind of talk about so you, you were know. just team jacob from the beginning <laughs> i have a controversial opinion about the twilight oh books. good controversial oh twilight okay. opinion. despite the fact that i am um, i don't like them i read uh. the first one i didn't like it so i never read the subsequent one my, my little sister um read them all she's i i, I was too old for them yeah anyway yeah. when they came out right she was younger she had them all and i read the first one and i didn't the like twi moms it. are listening to this getting really oh upset. yes you're right okay i'm sorry for that but it was it was pitched as yeah. young adult yeah. romance, right? But my feeling about Twilight, and it's a complicated question about fiction in general, I think, uh -huh. is that, okay, is the relationship portrayed in it um, awful if it were to exist in the real world? Hmm. Yes. However, Twilight, the novel, is a fantasy. Hmm. And so... It's, I, I feel like the reader, because many people point out, okay, from, uh, in, in both Twilight and later in Fifty Shades of Grey, yes. which is your more, like, obviously sexual version of the same story, mm -hmm. um, they point out the issue of consent. Like, consent isn't, uh, isn't correctly established between the characters, mm -hmm. right? Um, however, the real consent is happening when the reader chooses to read the story. Hmm. Right? It's the reader who is consenting to read a story about essentially like a male dominant relationship. Mm. Which um, is the attraction. In which this is case, the reader's fantasy. Yeah. Right? Mm. The readers who are enjoying it, yeah, who are reading yeah. it for that reason. Because I think, you know, in one's fantasy life, whether it's sexual or like platonic, you're imagining a situation where, say, sexual partners or romantic partners are doing the things that you want them to do without you having to ask. <laughs> And that's what those books are kind of giving the characters. There's no consent occurring because, oh, they, the, the female characters like happen to really like what the male characters are doing, and they happen to discover that they really like this thing. If you, you should never try to do that in real life yeah. because you have no idea if, the, if your partner would enjoy the things that you're hoping they would enjoy. You have to establish consent. But I just think that in this context, it's the reader's consent that matters. That is interesting. Because That's they're reading a fantasy about a world in which they never have to ask for what they want. What they want right. just happens just to them. Happens and that's to so them, much yeah. easier, yeah. Mm. That yeah. is such an interesting take on them. Yeah, I've all, I've often thought of about the consent debates about those books, particularly Fifty Shades, because well, yeah. it's actual sex, right? Mm. Um, as, as, like, missing the point that it's really the readers engaging with an imaginary yeah story yeah right i still think like you that when it's a young reader you have to explain to them yeah i think don't expect real relationships <laughs> to look like yeah. this Not yeah it. i think i think and it's an opportunity to, to talk about it what yes. is a healthy relationship for sure if he breaks into your room and sits watching you sleep without permission to get into your <laughs> house that's what we call a red flag yeah not a good sign yeah. exactly <laughs> but again, there is, yeah. and, and i think that's you know kids are and are very good at at 
telling the difference between in a story and in real life yes. too you know that, i think mm-hmm. that's that's important as well this segues really naturally into me asking you about books that were influential to you as a child and i yes. know we've touched on them some of them already but are there any others that were like um books that were influential to me as a child yes i'm going to my favorite book as a child um gosh let me think about that I, I think, you know, I, I had a really great relationship with books throughout my childhood because of my mom. So I'm going to mm-hmm. shout out Rosalind Bartlett, who was a teacher at uh, Count Heights. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, and I was able to, you know, we, we would read together for most of my, my young life mm-hmm. and introduced me. She was also like the hub in the family that was always reading the great books. So right. all my cousins mm-hmm. and everybody would be like... Like, okay, what's a book I should read? And she would have, like, a list of, of mm-hmm. things to, to Based go on to. their interests, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, so she she introduced me to, you know, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we read together when I was, like, in, in grade one or two mm-hmm. or something. And this was before the movies, so I would come to school asking kids to call me Gandalf, and they <laughs> thought it was nuts. Um, but... Uh, they were right. <laughs> they were not wrong, but... I guess one of my favorite books as a kid was The Iron Man by Ted Hughes, uh-huh. which was made into the movie The Iron Giant, which I haven't seen. But oh, was I, have, I haven't read the book, but we did see the movie when our kids were young. Yeah, yeah. and and great. you know it's, it's a great movie. Ted Hughes, of course, is a poet laureate, so right. so it's a very poetical novel, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's I, I don't know that the movie ends the same way, but you know he ends up there's it's kind of in three sections. The first is is it's this giant robot thing mm-hmm. and he's not really a robot he's just a thing um arriving and then the second one is is the world trying to figure out what to do with him mm-hmm. and then the third one is this giant dragon the size of a continent that lands on on the world and is a threat and the only like the world kind of elects the iron man as as their champion right, to deal right. with this dragon and uh and it's just it's so cool and weird and and creepy <laughs> it oh. has a giant robot in it i mean the movie is kind of cool and weird and creepy too so it's I'm supposed not sure, to be good yeah it yeah. is i'm not sure how closely it sticks to the plot but it's it's it feels like it has some of the same feel to yeah. it for me cool. black beauty by anna Sewell oh, was yes. probably the most influential book i like the way you phrase the question as influential instead of favorite mm-hmm. even yeah. though they're they're related it was one yeah. of my favorite books as well but black beauty is written from the perspective of a horse mm-hmm. in the victorian period and she specifically wrote it as a way to encourage people to be empathetic with animals mm, and yeah. horses in particular and the way they were being treated in Victorian England. So the main character goes through um, many different experiences mm-hmm. as a horse, you know, being a horse with blinders on, right. pulling a carriage, yeah. right, and, and being abused mm-hmm. in different circumstances. And it's all of his kind of, um, his his personal feelings yeah about yeah. these experiences he also talks to other horses mm-hmm. who relate things that have happened to them so i think there's a pony in it who's had its tail docked yes when they yes, used to I cut that. Oh part of the tail off and not just the hair but they would actually cut yes. off the bone the vertebra at the end of the spine to make the tail short and cute and this horse is saying how painful that was and he doesn't understand why humans would want to do that to him reading that book when i was little um really really did develop my empathy it did exactly what the author intended when i read it as a child i thought absolutely animals are having these experiences and why don't we have more appreciation yeah for the fact that animals 
suffer and experience emotions just like we do. It's something that we can see. It actually boggles my mind that there are, are people and cultures and points in time where pe most people believed that animals didn't feel yeah. and that for some Including reason... Including the Victorians. Yeah, well, and, you know, if you kick a dog and it yelps, that's a, a sort of mechanical reaction. Mm, yeah. Instead yeah. of the more, what I would think is the more logical conclusion right. that it yelps for the same reason I would if you kicked me. Exactly, that it's in pain. That yeah. it hurts. Mm. But that book just, it, it does such a good job oh, yeah. of, of helping you to relate to a non-human animal. And I think it really changed the way I, I view other creatures in this world and trying to alleviate suffering mm -hmm. to the best of my ability. I think it's a wonderful book for kids to develop compassion. It is. I think I had the same experience with that book also mm. at a very young and impressionable age. Mm. I had an illustrated Black Beauty which had beautiful paintings of horses in it as well. And it's funny because I haven't, I don't often think of that book now, but when you mention the two things, the wearing the blinders and the pony that had its yes. tail dock, that just brought back such visceral memories. Of when reading you're that reading is, about, yes, oh my God. It feels Yikes. so real. Because I remember, and I, I haven't looked at that book in years, mm -hmm. probably perhaps since I was a child, but I still remember um, when he's pulling the carriage with blinders and he's talking about how he can't sense anything around yes. him and how frightening it is for yeah. him. It's oh amazing. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That's a book that I think has largely been forgotten, but really shouldn't be because even though the specific plight of cart horses is mm. not, is not a, a, as a big a concern anymore, that that bigger picture of empathy towards other living things is still so relevant. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to just mention as an aside about books that resonate with you when you're a child is that I, in both movies and films that I loved as a child, I realized as an adult that they were all about female protagonists. Mm. With the exception of something like Black Beauty, which is about a horse yeah. protagonist. Um, but it's something that, you know, on the topic of our discussion about, um, you know, ra ra uh, racism in books and how... Um, people of different cultures and ethnicities are portrayed, how people of different genders are portrayed, really matters. Like yeah. you, you need to see yourself and mm -hmm. positive um, possible futures mm -hmm. for yourself in fiction. It is, it's only looking back that I realized, wow, I really gravitated to, to um, complex, interesting, powerful female characters. Mm -hmm. And when I look at all my favorite things... Yeah. They were they were female characters and things that I didn't relate to, like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, there's yeah. No real, and there's no real women in Lord of the Rings. Well, this no. is interesting because I had the same same thing growing up, like reading mostly books with strong girl protagonists. Yes. And then I read The Hobbit when I was I don't know maybe thirteen. Yeah. And I was maybe even a little younger. And I remember feeling really like, what's what is it about this book that makes me uneasy? I like really I like, like it, but there's something right. really important missing. And I was in nice ways into it. I was like, oh, there are no girls. There yes. are no girls no. in this story, and therefore, not that I can't enjoy it. Yeah. But that there's not a character there that I can relate to the way I was used to, for example, seeing Narnia through the eyes of Lucy, for example. Yes. Or you know, so many other stories where the female character was my you know my viewpoint yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting, like we were saying about racism earlier, as as a this white guy reading yeah. these books as a kid, yeah. I was just unaware of the problem. Right, right. I was right. In, everybody looked like no me yeah. to in blissful ignorance and not yeah. understanding. But but obviously, you know, to, to have no reflection of yourself in these stories would, you know, Except those as a things caricature matter. Or, yeah. 
Or, or you know, a, a woman told through the lens of a male author, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is what this guy thinks women are going to talk about yeah. And, yeah. and act like. So, yeah. you know, it's it's just, it's amazing that we went so long with yeah. that being the standard. It's horrible. Yeah. It's, it's funny to look back at what you appreciated as a child and recognize those patterns that you didn't yes. recognize yeah. at the time. That it was intuitive at the time, and it's only as an adult that you can see, oh, there's a reason that I really preferred these books and these movies yeah. to those books and those movies, even though they have similar themes. Yeah, yeah, and you don't necessarily see it till till you're reflecting afterwards. Yeah. But it does, it does come back to that thing of representation and how important it is to see yourself, yes. see people <clears throat> like you, and then also to see people different from you as perspective. In a positive I have to I have to jump in with another book recommendation um, because I was thinking of this when you were talking about From Hell mm. um, and then you had been talking about books that do history through the lens of story yeah. um, have either of you read Haley Rubenhold's The Five? I listened to the podcast I was going to bring <gasps> it up I'm too very excited about The Five Bad Women is the yeah. podcast oh, I haven't okay. read the book the, the, I'm sure that well I listened to it on audiobook so it's probably a very similar experience yeah, to I think to so the podcast. Yeah. but that is such to me that's such a fascinating way into you know what we, we know as the Jack the Ripper story yes. and it is in fact the story of these five women and that whole social world that they came out of I have been recommending it to Andrew uh, yeah it's something I'd really like to because you know oh. the first thing you realize when you read anything any ripper fiction or or history books is that we're entirely focused on the murderer who's yeah. the murderer yes. what yeah. what was the world of the murderer and the story of the women the most important part and i think we are only just at a point where we're switching this in terms of crime as it's happening yes. focusing yeah. on the victims instead of the murderer you know generally now in canada we don't even name, like, if there's a shooting or something, we're not naming that person. Yeah. We're talking about the victims and the impact that this event is having. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a good change. But with Jack the Ripper, of course, it was all, even at the time, the newspapers were so lascivious about who could it be, mm-hmm. this guy. Maybe it's this guy with the leather apron and the butcher knife yeah. and, and and no interest in the women at all. So yeah. So doing that kind of work is so important and fascinating. And she found a lot of really interesting stuff. She really did. That's yeah. the, It's so interesting. I love the five and bad women. I, I was fascinated with the Ripper murders when I was a teenager, like when I was 13, 14. My dad had books on all these subjects in the library. And around that age, I was sort of morbid. And yeah. I was reading books about torture and like pulling, <laughs> pulling those types of topics out of the library. So I read up on Jack the Ripper. But I remember when I was around that age, 13, 14, memorizing all the names of the victims. Mm. Because I thought, I just want to remember. I just want to remember the names of the women that he yeah. killed. Uh, and listening to um, Bad Women, mm-hmm. Haley Rubenholtz podcast, what I loved about it is that it has that feature I mentioned earlier that mm. I enjoy in nonfiction, which is challenging something we think is true about the past. Yes. And specifically what she's challenging is the idea that they were all sex workers. Yes. And yeah. that has just been a truism with the Ripper yeah, murders. It's just, like, yeah, it's one of those. He targeted, and not necessarily when people t- talk about the Ripper murders, they're not necessarily saying that, they, they're not saying, oh, the women deserved it because they were sex no. workers. They're saying that's why they were accessible. Yes. Or yeah. maybe the killer had a vendetta or mm-hmm. was some sort of like virtue killer or something um and in in her book she says there's no reason to believe they were sex workers that was the bias of the the investigators at the time one of them appears to have done sex work but there's no evidence the others did yeah and the the real common thread was poverty yes these were yeah these were all women who you know through one means or another were destitute and uh 
probably were more accessible for that reason. That's yeah. right. And that and she points out rightly that that would have been a much more frightening thing to acknowledge that it was actually yes. a social yeah. factor that was putting these women at risk rather than something that they could be seen to be bringing on themselves. One yes. of the big things about the River Murders that I always remember is that as it hit the newspapers and people started reading about the area, about mm. Whitechapel, that had never been there in London for the first time, um, and reading about the conditions people were living in, for example, in DOS houses where, mm. where people would stay overnight, mm-hmm. you could pay a penny, and they would tie you to the wall. There would be this just this one rope going along the wall. And everybody would just kind bed. of, if you didn't have enough money for a bed, you just, just kind of lean on this rope. Yeah. And in the yeah. morning, they'd come and cut the rope and everybody would just mm. fall down when it was mm-hmm. time to leave, right? That's how horrible yeah. it was. Anyway, so uh, people read about this. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's so horrible that people live like this. That's absolutely horrible. And there was this woman, th- this, uh, this group of, of really high society women in... London, who thought the conditions were horrible, and so they took up a petition a petition to close all these houses. Like, those conditions are horrible, let's close all the houses. And so they did, and now these people had nowhere to stay. <sighs> this well, is so typical. in the middle of these... middle-class white women. Yeah. That is same, same thing today. This oh, absolutely. The same thing. Yeah. Let's just hide the problem yeah. instead of solving Instead of solving whatever the root cause. It's yeah. also been really interesting to me, and I'm sure, having listened to the podcast, you're aware this, how much hate Haley Rubenhold has gotten from yes. the ripperologists. Yes. Like people who are so invested in the way the story's always been told that they get really angry at somebody who's telling the story with a different well, emphasis. I mean, you know? most most of them are, are cracked. So, oh, yes. Well, yeah. uh, but also One of them I, tore up a painting trying to prove it had the DNA of the oh river in it. But I do think, okay, there there's a mix of people. Not all of them are academic, but I do think people police the boundaries of their disciplines. Oh, yes. You yeah. know, academics do it, ripperologists, another sort of yeah. specialty field. But the other thing I noticed about Haley Rubenhold, maybe I'm wrong about this. I just, it appears to me this is the case. She was raised in the United States and she has a British accent on the podcast ah. and she has said in other contexts that uh, you know you're not taken seriously talking about British ac- about British history without a British if accent if you don't have a British accent I believe that occasionally absolutely. on the podcast she'll be speaking to someone else and uh-huh. she'll drop into an American accent and so I'm not saying she's faking I think no. one of her parents is British and mm-hmm. she has the ability to speak with both accents but I think that's kind of how bad it is. You get policed even for the way you're speaking yes. and whether that indicates that you have a right to speak to this topic, yeah. right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. What's a book you, you wish you could get other people to read? Okay, the, the number one book that I, I often recommend to people is called A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, 1599. Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, that's been on my to-read list for it's, a while. It's incredible. It's by James Shapiro. He's, he's written two books on Shakespeare that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. And what's great about this book is that... Uh, we don't know anything about Shakespeare. We, mm-hmm. we know next to nothing. And that's very um, unsatisfying for most people. Yes. Um, and that's why we, we come up with lots of theories, like, oh, maybe Shakespeare was a pirate. Maybe he was, he was this other guy we do know a lot of yeah. things about yeah. um, to fill the, the gap. So what Shapiro does in this book, instead of tell us a story about Shakespeare that's probably largely just conjecture, mm-hmm. he tells us what we do know, and everything that was going on around where Shakespeare would have been. So right. here's where Shakespeare would have been. He was at this place at this time. We know because we have the receipt that uh-huh. he, he did or, or he wrote about it in this. Here is what he would have known. Hmm. And so they just take the year 1599 because it was his most prolific year. I think he wrote uh, Romeo and Juliet. I think he wrote Henry V. 
I don't remember what else he wrote, but he he wrote a, a, he had a good year, a bunch yeah, of his big, yeah. you know, in one year, right? And Whatever, he's just tossing them yeah. off, and it starts with them moving. Uh, I'm going to get all these names wrong, but moving the theater that he mm-hmm. was in yeah. that became the Globe, but it was I think it was just the theater, mm-hmm. and um, they they owned the building. The, mm-hmm. the the people who who staged the place owned the building, but they didn't own the land it was on. And so the guy that owned the land in London was basically calling them on it to try mm-hmm. to get them off. They were a bunch of riffraff. Yeah. And he was kind of hoping, like, oh, I get a free building out of it because they <laughs> built this awesome theater on my land, right? So he was canceling their lease. And so, like, on the wee hours of the morning, I think it was, like, in December 1598, all these actors and, and writers and everybody come down with weapons because the only place you could get weapons in London at the time was either an armory or a theater because they used uh-huh, weapons course, on stage. yeah. They came down, they surround the theater with swords and tear it apart. Like So So some of them are working dismem- dismantling this building, and uh-huh. the rest of them are preventing anybody else from getting to them, any of these <sighs> landlord's uh-huh. creditors, basically. They take the whole building apart, they take it across the river and store it, and eventually they build it, and it rebuild it, and it's the globe. Mm-hmm. And it's just this crazy story of these guys tearing That's apart the theater. That's such a great thing to open with, too. Yeah. It's an amazing scene. And what's great about it is we know about that. We know about the details of the theater scene in London. We know about these these plays that were put off and these events. We don't know anything about Shakespeare. But he was there for all this stuff. If he wasn't at that event, he knew about it. Right. And so what Shapiro does with this book, he paints the entire world that formed Shakespeare, that formed the plays that mm-hmm. were important in here and he goes through each of the plays and talks about the world that that as it was at that time and uh and and we don't need to know the specifics of what shakespeare was doing on thursday right because we just don't Mm -hmm. so it's it's an incredible book that i recommend to everybody the other one that i really want to get in yeah it's a local book and there's a good reason i'm recommending it it's the log of bob bartlett okay Mm. um it's his actual like like uh voyage of the carlick and ship's log log. and why I'm recommending this is that he was an incredible writer. He was a great adventurer. Uh-huh. He was an incredible writer. And every kid who goes to school in Newfoundland and Labrador has to read Bob Bartlett, The Great Explorer by Harold Horwood, and the book sucks. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they do anymore, but no, for a long they don't? time no. that was on the curriculum. We, yeah. we were in high school 20 years ago. Oh, no. <laughs> well, but, I know. I don't well, hurt your feelings. I mean, it's, it was so bad that when I was teaching 20 years ago, yes. I had to choose between... Lure of the Labrador Wild or Bartlett the Great Explorer, and I went with Lure of the Labrador Wild. It's a good so, choice. Yeah, yeah. We we were taught it when we were taught Bartlett the Great Explorer. That that whole section of the curriculum was here's how not to write a book. Oh, that's a good way to teach right? it. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, here it is. But it's but it's you, so too bad because Bar- Bartlett's actual journals Bartlett's are so actual journals are so great oh, and wow. visceral, and he's there, and and he's he's so poetic in the way he describes things and. And it's such good reading if you oh. can get a. I think it was just reprinted recently. That's what I was wondering: is has someone rele- released them recently? Or it is. is it the it's another book that I'm fortunate enough to have a first edition of, oh. thanks to Ainsley. I think it was a Christmas present. Yeah, you're welcome. Nice. So thank you very much. But uh, if you can find it, which I think you can, it's a really great local book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. But don't read the Horwood. No, no, we don't. We don't need to recommend. Sorry, that. Harold. <laughs> no, no. I'm pretty sure Harold Horwood doesn't have people listening to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ainsley, are there any books that you would recommend to God, people? I don't know. Um, 
I Guns, Germs, and Steel is oh, a really yeah. eye-opening book. It is a bit of a tough read, mm -hmm. which which might be the thing that prevents me from recommending it widely. Obviously, huge, huge bestseller. Lots yeah, of people read yeah. it, but it is it is a bit dense. Mm -hmm. But what's fabulous about it is he's he's making an argument for why. Um, Europeans colonized other parts of the world and not the reverse. Right. And he breaks it down um, to a variety of um, circumstances about living in Europe that were mm -hmm. different from other places and purely a matter of chance. Right. right. So it's, it's sort of a beautiful argument against the idea of like some sort of natural European white supremacy, supremacy. Yeah. right? Is yeah. that... Well, by, you know, by chance, animals in, there were more um, domesticable species of animals in Europe, which led to more, you know, yeah. livestock rearing, which led to more communicable diseases, which meant that Europeans had greater immunity eventually against mm -hmm. communicable diseases than people in other parts of the world. And when they went to other parts of the world, their bacteria and viruses were more likely to kill the people they met there than the than reverse. Yeah. <laughs> so things like that, but yeah. it was so, sort of completely a matter of chance. And that's just one example. It goes through a number. So I think it's one of those books that's that's very eye-opening mm -hmm. for giving you a background on why the world today looks the way that it does mm. instead of seeing it as destiny. Yeah. You sort of see it as this, this uh, random assortment of environmental and historical features that shuffled things out the way they are now but it's in no way natural or it's not a result of kind of like innate abilities that some people have and other people's lack yeah so that sounds like yeah. a badly needed corrective to the people who are you know banging on about western civilization and its inherent superiority oh my gosh absolutely yeah we we need <laughs> it, it would be nice you sort of imagine well what what's the best way to counteract those arguments mm -hmm. and if people have the willingness to read about some of the, the kind of differences in the environments that different groups of people were based in, which is not to say that Europe was like a better or easier place to live or that European cultures were better or more scintillating. No. It was complete, completely um, sort of ridiculous yeah. aspects of the landscape, like they had more viruses. Yeah. Which, right? Which so. on the surface doesn't seem like an advantage, but then no. if you're going and colonizing other places, yeah, maybe it becomes an advantage. Yeah, so I, I'd say that was a really eye-opening book, mm -hmm. Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Again, that's one that's been on my radar for a long time, and I, while I basically know what it's about, I've never read it, so yeah. might have to might have to get around to that one at some point, too. Worth it, but a bit of a slog at times. Yeah. Well, I would definitely be listening to it as an audio. Oh, good. So. That's a great way. I need way to go. do more of that. My, I, I mentioned earlier, I mostly read nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I get all my fiction through podcasts. Okay. But I listen to short fiction, like uh -huh. LeVar Burton reads and right, things like right, that. Yeah. I should get into more audiobooks. Yeah. For me, it's it's kind of, I'm, mo I'm kind of the opposite. Most of my reading is fiction. Mm. But nonfiction, I get almost entirely through audiobooks. Because yes, that okay. works well for me as a way to... Um, I just seem to process it better in an audio yes. form than sitting down and reading it. So that's I've I've gotten through a lot more nonfiction in the last few years just from bringing audiobooks into my uh, into my mix. So. Yeah, and I've heard people say, and I think it's it's really important, is that if if you are someone who 
um, does not, you know, enjoy for whatever reason because it's difficult or it doesn't suit you reading words on paper. Mm -hmm. Audiobooks are completely legitimate. Absolutely, you know, it's I'll... still reading. It's still enjoying. You know, I, I wish we could lay down the book wars and be like, oh. paper books are good, ebooks are good, audio books are good, good, books are good. Use the format that works for you. Absolutely, because I think when you know when you sort of set artificial standards like mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. makes people feel like what they do is inadequate. Mm -hmm. It it, um, it ignores the fact that human beings are natural storytellers. Yeah. We all love stories. We love to tell them. We love to hear them. Mm -hmm. So whatever way you can access them Absolutely. that works for yeah. you, And actually in it. that category, too, graphic novels. You yeah. Know, yeah, comics another are one. good, comics. guys. Yeah, comics no, really? are good. Yeah. And that whole, yeah, well, it's not, it's not a real book if it's a comic book. Is a mm. whole, that's another whole book snobbery. Great. Yeah. Comics are great. Comics yeah, are definitely. Great. That's right. Yeah, we were having a conversation on the way over here. I'd yeah, we were yeah. just talking about this because I, I used to manage a bookstore, mm -hmm. and somebody just posted an article about, uh, and it was really interesting about how men aren't reading as much as oh, they yes. used to be. Yeah, it's mostly yeah. women, and they had the numbers. I think it was something like sixty percent of readers now or more. Mm -hmm. And are let's women. let's specify they're not reading books. They're not reading as much books. as women are because there are many types of reading. Yeah. And, but how this this article uh, started was this woman talking about how. Uh, there, she was comparing with her husband or something what they were reading, and he was reading like military fiction on yes, Mars or yeah, something like that. Yeah, the genre, she, a lot of genre fiction, right? Mm. And she was reading Jane Austen, mm -hmm. and she was trying to figure out why he wouldn't get into it. And he's like, "Oh, you know, like it's too much talking or whatever." Mm -hmm. And the rest of the article was kind of about this, like, why aren't men reading literary fiction? Mm -hmm. Why? How can we get men to read literary fiction? And interesting, and it, it was an interesting article, but it also brings up something that. I encountered a lot when I was managing a bookstore, which is the idea that literary fiction is somehow more inherently worthwhile yes. than nonfiction mm -hmm. or genre, genre fiction. fiction yeah. Yeah. Like as as long as it isn't a historical novel or has any element of the fantastic, that's the real stuff, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And yeah. It, it was a very strange. I, I encountered people who vociferously would argue like, "Oh, all I really want to read about is like families in the modern day and their problems mm -hmm. and what they're doing." And all that, like, I can't read about elves and stuff because that isn't real. But the problem, of course, with what we call literary fiction, which is really just, you know, modern fiction. Modern I would say fiction. contemporary fiction. Contemporary It's fiction. about the present-day realism. Yeah, because yeah. literature, you know, something heightened, like a Jane yeah. Austen. Yes. Like it's something that's proved itself. I don't want to go into canon. I don't want to start sounding like Harold Bloom here. But <laughs> oh, my God, please don't. I won't. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, there's... Um, what was I saying about contemporary fiction? I've lost it. You were saying the value judgment is yeah. artificial, right? But and it's also dangerous to mm -hmm. not dangerous, but you know, Jack Kirby, a, a comic creator, has mm -hmm. a really great quote about somebody criticizing that he was always doing these fantastic stories in his comics, and that literary fiction essentially was the better way to go. Mm -hmm. And he he disparaged it entirely, saying that if you hold a mirror up to nature, mm -hmm. all you do is get everything backwards. You have to get mm -hmm. above. Using genre, using the fantastic to see what we're really doing. You have to imagine yourself above, like the yeah. the, the the dirt that we're in to really see it. Mm -hmm. And and so he he felt the only way to be able to tell a real human story was to add elements of the fantastic. Now he was absolutely out to lunch in terms of imagination, <laughs> and what he was doing. But you know he created the entire Marvel universe. But um, but it's an interesting idea because. When we read a, a modern, you know, a, a Jennifer Weiner or a Jodie Picoult or, you know, a Jane Austen or something, it's easy to trick yourself into thinking that this is how real people act. Mm. Mm. 
when it's still just one person's imagination. That's right. That's true. Yeah, that's dangerous. Yeah. yeah. The the whole literary versus popular versus genre fa- like I could rant about that for ages. Like yes. like Jennifer Weiner and Jody Picot, Jody Picot, contemporary fiction, but not considered literary. That's fiction, a very good they're point. They're women's fiction. They're yeah. popular women's fiction. Yeah, well, again, that's a good like, point. And and there are like I I I frequently rant about the fact that. Margaret Atwood now is basically a sci-fi writer. She's been writing yes. sci-fi for a long time. Absolutely. What's Handmaid's Tale? Exactly, it's Handmaid's Tale fiction. and everything after that, Oryx and Crake and everything yes. she's done since then. Like, it's sci-fi. It's dystopian, futuristic sci-fi, but nobody will call it that because it's literary fiction. Mm-hmm. It's just There's just so much snobbery around the whole idea of literary fiction. I just we wish we would it. acknowledge that literariness is a different quality. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. you it's have genres. Genre. Yeah. Like, like, subject matter mm-hmm. is your genres. Maybe it's romance, maybe it's horror maybe it's like fantasy and then within each genre there are levels of literariness yeah. now how you define literariness a whole that's other a whole other can of worms kettle of we, fish but i do think, not have time to open that up tonight no but i i definitely you know i have read more and less literary like fantasy yes yeah right yeah, there's some fantasy that's literary. very literary there's some that's very yeah yeah and i think some of it is how much is it story driven versus language driven but you yes know, i yeah. think so yeah or thematic whether it has like a sort of metaphor or is like mm-hmm. an allegory or something can add literariness but the the thing I want to go back to about what we were talking about earlier because the the author of the article you read kind of turned it into this literary versus commercial mm-hmm. fiction debate. But I'm really interested in the original study she was citing mm-hmm. that men read fewer books than women do now or are less prone mm-hmm. to read books. And I haven't read the study, but I'm interested in looking at it because the type of like sort of scary statistic that I've heard in the reverse um, from other studies that show that young-ish women, like women in their 20s and 30s, are no longer reading the news mm. or, like, checking news websites. They're the, they're the fastest, what, what would you call it, sort of the fastest shrinking Different group wow. of, of news readers. And I think that those types of stats are used to frighten people. Like, yes. men yeah. are becoming more ignorant and women are becoming less interested in current events. Mm-hmm. But I think there are always different reasons for it. Yeah. Like, among, you know, young young women, I would say the reason for it likely is that much news, mm-hmm. as you would find it in a newspaper on a website, is... Um, distressing stories you can't do anything about yes yeah right yeah. so it's if if you are interested in what's going on in the world the the fact of the matter is let's be honest it's going to come up on your social media yes anything interest you know interesting happening in your local area or a current event um worldwide you're going to see it and yeah. then you can look further into it exactly. as opposed to just exposing yourself to the 15 worst things that have happened today yeah every time you check a news site so i i sort of wonder the same thing about oh men are reading fewer books well what's the reason for that are men reading other things other yeah. than books right or or what is what is the background behind that is yeah. it is it because books are kind of a form of entertainment mm. and men are playing more video games that could be too yeah. you know I, I'd yeah. love to oh, know video games are getting more literary as well that's so maybe they that's are they're yeah. more novelistic and again yeah, it's right? just another form of storytelling yes yeah, yeah. Well, I think we are at the end of our time. I don't know if we touched on every book you guys wanted to I talk about. I think we about, did pretty well. But we yeah, did great. It's been yeah. a great conversation. I've yeah. really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you for, for having, having us, Trudy. Okay. 
That wraps up my conversation with Ainsley and Andrew Hawthorne, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as the three of us did. As always, if you go to my website, TrudyMorganCole.com, and you click on the podcast shelf esteem link, it will take you to a page with a list of all the episodes. You can choose the show notes for today's episode, and you'll see a list of all the books that Ainsley, Andrew, and I discussed. I'm going to be back again next month with another podcast. This time it's going to be myself and my daughter Emma Cole doing another one of our book swap episodes where we each recommend a book for the other to read and then uh, read and discuss the two books and have a great conversation about them. I'm really looking forward to that and I hope you'll be back again next month. Until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem.